let me ask you something. What makes a study phenomenological? What is phenomenology anyway? And what makes it valuable for medical education research? My name is Mario Veen, and in this episode we will discuss a paper I co-authored with Chris Rietmeier. It's called Phenomenological Research in Health Professions Education, Tunneling from Both Ends. It's a sixth installment in the Philosophy in Medical Education series in the journal Teaching and Learning in Medicine. It's open access, so you can read it for free. It will also be published as a book chapter later this year in an edited volume that Anna Cianciolo and I are working on now, which is called Helping a Field See Itself, Envisioning a Philosophy of Medical Education. I'm here with Anna and Chris. Chris Rietmeier has been a family doctor for over 20 years. He's now working as a teacher and curriculum designer for Dutch training of family physicians. Chris is also a PhD student, researching direct observation in postgraduate training relationships. And he lives in Amsterdam in the Netherlands. Anna Cianciolo is an associate professor of medical education at Southern Illinois University School of Medicine, an editor-in-chief of Teaching and Learning in Medicine, home of the Philosophy in Medical Education series. I was really glad to see this installment in the series because honestly, I had a lot of the same questions, Chris, that you had about phenomenology. And, and I experienced these questions as an editor and as a reader of the med-ed literature coming from a different field, a non-medical field. And, and the, the way that phenomenology was used, that term seemed somewhat loose. And reading this article, the article that you wrote, first of all, made me feel not alone. And second, it was edifying in terms of starting to sort out what exactly phenomenology means and what its implications are for how we do research and, and how we read research as well. Well, thank you. <laughs> it's nice to hear that because uh, it's nice. But just like you say, it's nice to have some recognition of so where I, where I was when I started this, um, that I felt um, the same as you, that, well, I hadn't done anything in phenomenology before I started this, this study on, on patients' experiences in direct observation situations. And um, it was just like I said in the article, it, it was just my supervisor who suggested to, to take a phenomenological approach. And I said, okay, well, yes, yeah, sure, but what is that? And um, well, he, then he was actually, I thought perhaps he will not agree, but I thought it was a bit vague what he, and especially it was a bit vague how that would, how that would um, be different from a, a constructivist grounded theory approach, um, which I was, which I'd gotten quite familiar with with two other uh, studies. And, um, so, so I started reading some about, about phenomenology and I started to, to read some articles that um, claims a phenomenological approach in medical uh, education uh, research. And then, you know, I thought I just couldn't get it. So, so at the end of the, of the article, I thought, well, okay, this is all interesting. And you've told me about your methods and, and you've done this all very meticulously and you've really 
uh, did a very serious study, no doubt about that. But at the end of the day, I, I wondered, but, but how is this phenomenological? It's just seemed to me that you, for instance, you interview people and then you do a thematic analysis of, of, of your data. And I would call that just a thematic analysis of what people tell me. Yes, yes. Oftentimes I would see the term phenomenological applied to a, usually an interview study, almost always an interview study. And I would find myself wondering, why did they label this study phenomenological? I don't see anything about it that's different from interview studies that were not labeled as such. And, and it, that imprecision was bothersome to me. And it, trying to, as, as you described in the article, trying to figure out how this term should be applied by reading things that I could find online or by talking with colleagues, I just didn't really have a very satisfying answer to that. And it was, I think part of, a big part of what was missing from those conversations or from my own search was a delving into the philosophical side of phenomenology. You know, it is a phenomenology as an approach versus a, a qualitative research method. And that, that piece that, that you got there, that you were able to start tunneling and that someone was coming in from another side was really a, a great thing to have happen. Yeah, and that's what really happens. This was, this was a, a, I was lucky to meet uh, Mario as, like in 2019 in Vienna, we had met once before. And then we started this conversation and, um, and he was telling about this project in, in, in teaching and learning in medicine. And um, so, well, we started emailing about my questions and uh, quite quickly we thought, well, perhaps this could become an article because we won't be the only ones that are uh, struggling with how to apply phenomenology to medical education research. So Mario, <laughs> what would you say about this? Yeah, I really like, like how things came together because um, that was the time that Anna and I were busy with this uh, series, still in the initial stages, I think. And uh, initially you just, uh, I, got, I think I got an email from you or something like that. You, you had a presentation at my department and um you you said oh i'm doing this uh, phenomenological research and i heard you have a background in uh, philosophy and can we speak about that sometime yeah. so basically that was just a conversation but then because i was also involved with the series for teaching and learning in medicine i thought well but that's actually the series a dialogue between a uh, more philosophical perspective and more clinical or research perspective so basically, if I look at the article now, it's a very, very condensed version of, of that dialogue because, yeah, a, a dialogue which is still ongoing sometimes. Yeah. And that's what I enjoyed is that it's really a dialogue. And, and also, I think there's sometimes it was confronting, sometimes it wasn't easy. And I think there's still many things that, that we still can't really see each other's perspective. Yeah. 
but that's what I enjoyed most most about it. And it was really challenging for me because, uh, you know, if I would go off on uh, one of my tangents about something that I really enjoy and you ask, okay, but how is this different from grounded theory? I mean, those are very confronting questions sometimes. And this article was a way of trying to kind of answer those questions. And also I have to say the reviewer comments were really helpful as well because i mean one of the reviewer comments was okay but how is this different from qualitative research in general yeah i mean we really had to think about that how how to go about answering that question one of the the things that i like about this article as a dialogue is that i can see it fostering more dialogue and i can see for example referring contributors to this article when they use the term phenomenology or phenomenological in their manuscripts. And I wonder, based on what I've read in this article, whether that term is, is appropriately applied to what it is that they did. And I can refer them to that article and ask the question, in, in light of this conversation about phenomenology, in what respect is this work phenomenological and, and is it worth reconsidering whether that term applies to this piece? And then maybe over time, at least in the work that we're producing out of teaching and learning in medicine, we can achieve maybe a little bit more precision with, with the use of this term. I, I think it can appear in published literature to studies that are arguably non-phenomenological and it not get caught because the, the editors and reviewers themselves are similarly um, not as facile with the concepts as they need to be. Yeah. And this, this will allow us to have quite a bit more dialogue and help those, those educators and educator scholars who want to have a greater precision and a more articulate understanding of the different ways of knowing that they can engage in to answer their educational questions. Um, I, I like the, the prospects of being able to apply this work to that as well, because we really do at, at TLM, we really have the educator scholar at the forefront of our minds in terms of who our readership is and who our contributors are. Well, that's wonderful. So <laughs> I can say is that, is that if our work uh, serves that, that, that purpose, that's, that's great. And still, I, like Mario, you always emphasize that this is an ongoing um, conversation. And, and for myself, especially, I will, I'm the first to say that I really have not, like I told you before, I, I don't have the, the idea that I know it now how it, how it is, you know. But 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 it's worthwhile to work with it and to try to understand it a bit. Yeah, but I don't have that idea either. I just saw a few weeks ago uh, a, a tweet from a, a philosophy uh, person, and the tweet was, "I have no idea what phenomenology is." It's not like it's a thing that we know what it is, and just ask someone with a philosophy background. I mean, there will be many different answers depending on who you ask. It's more kind of a, 
an approach or a kind of practice. And one of, one part of the practice is that you need to be very specific about what you're doing, very concrete, because it's basically instead of saying I'm going to do research about an, a research object uh, and I know already before I even start my study, I know I want to know the effectiveness or I want to know, uh, I want to study the emotions of the resident or I want to look at the sociological aspects. In phenomenology, you actually kind of outsource that to the phenomenon. Phenomenon actually means that which shows itself, that which occurs to us. And phenomenology, you can translate as describing that which shows itself to us as it shows itself to us. But the way it shows itself to us, it's very different from, for instance, a dream and something like a, a car on the road. It really depends on what you're studying, what your re research method is like. And that's a very strange thing uh, that I still find hard to express because you can't really have a stepwise approach until you know what, you are, what phenomenon you're studying. Yeah, it makes me wonder how many interview studies actually can be phenomenological because in the interviews... Like, so for the phenomenon of interest to occur as a product of having the interview, then if the interview, and I'm kind of thinking about this in real time, yeah. so forgive, forgive me, but so if the interview is asking participants to recall things, then that would seem like and, and what you're asking about is that recalled experience then that wouldn't necessarily be a phenomenological study unless your intent is to study recall because the phenomenon of recall is happening while you're doing that interview. And that is most often not the purpose of an interview study because you're actually trying to get at that experience that you're asking somebody to recall. Is that... Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah, Maria van Braak wrote an article about that, which was about video stimulated interviewing. So, mm -hmm. uh, or video stimulated recall, as it's often called. So, mm -hmm. there she's interviewing people about uh, an education session that they were part of. And then, let's say, a non phenomenological way uh, would be to say that you're studying what they were thinking in the session. Because you're asking someone, oh, what were you thinking there, for instance? Or why did you do that? But the argument that she's making in the article is that actually you're asking, it's more like a reflection tool and you're studying how they are reflecting on this in the moment, which mm -hmm. of course the two are very much connected. But that, again, that's the precision. So then, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. again, there we always have to say, but <laughs> uh, you can also have another approach in saying, well, we are actually interested in the experience of people at the time. And one way of doing that is interviewing them about the experience in the past. And that way we can say something about what it is like to be in that past experience. But then probably in the first instance, you would use maybe something like a discourse analysis or template analysis. In the second case, you might use uh, interpretive phenomenology or another kind of uh, method. And I think both are valid ways of approaching something phenomenologically. Um, 
as long as you're precise about what, what phenomenon you're studying. In the first case, you're studying, let's say, how do people construct the value of this education session? In the second case, maybe you're studying how do people experience that education session? Uh, this this goes into more other dangerous territory. <laughs> we have things like triangulation. Yeah. Because <laughs> I was thinking, you know, if you had and if you wanted to get at the the experience so we have the reality that for most medical educators and medical education scholars it's very difficult to do direct observation studies as i'm sure you experienced chris like you, to, just to get the access to the ongoing practice environment can be very challenging and then to to secure the time to do the observational study and and so forth can be very challenging. And, and even, even stimulated recall studies can be infeasible for a lot of medical education researchers. And I think that's a reason why we see so many interview studies. And so my thought was going to, as you were talking, Mario, was how, how to conduct that interview study in a way that is going to be true to the philosophical approach of phenomenology, recognizing that this is this interview is a a post hoc experience and b its own constructed phenomenon. And yeah. so then I started thinking, well, maybe you could do other, you could collect other forms of data that might help you approach the experience that lived experience from different angles but is that just triangulation with another label with all of its uh, <laughs> concerns intact i think that chris's research is a really good example of that because he's interested in this direct observation but actually yeah maybe you could speak a little bit about that because you're looking at it from different perspectives yes we started with uh, two constructive scholarly theories with focus groups with uh, residents and focus groups with supervisors and then we wanted to uh, investigate the third perspective which is the patient who is in the same room when this is happening um was this, these were direct observation of patient care situations. And um, so we did the third study, we, we did these interviews with the patient, which we tried to do in a phenomenological way. And I have to think about this article of Hufting and Martini. They did some work on, on phenomenological interviewing. And so, so what we are trying to, to find is the pre-reflective experience in phenomenology which is like we say in this article, in our article, it's just an idealization because we'll, we'll never be able to, to, to find that, but, but we can strive uh, looking for it and for looking for it. And um, um, so what Hufting says is that you, you interview the, the, the patient, first of all, you, you know that you will never know what people think, but you will all, only know what people say that they think or say that they feel that's that's for one thing that's of course so and um and to bring them to uh to to now to to also he says that the pre-reflective experience is not something that that you can dig up and try to 
get out of front like an archaeologist and make sure that it doesn't get, um, you know, that it keeps intact and so on. It is something, Hufting says, the pre-reflective experience is something that we co-create in the interview. It is, um, and uh, and to get, to get as close as possible, he, he, he says, you have to keep asking about the how of the experience. So how was it? Who said where? Who, who, who shook hands with whom? And, 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 and then what happens? And how did that make you feel? And, and then what, so you, you want to get a quite a factual um, idea of what happens. And then you start wondering when you have done some uh, interviews. So you, you start wondering what are the, the recurring patterns that we see? So what, what is something that obviously everybody experiences in this situation? And, and this goes quite basic, like, like every patient in this situation um, experiences that he or she is there with two doctors. One doctor is more experienced than the other, that is the supervisor. And the other is less experienced, that's the resident. And this is one, so this is quite like we say in Dutch, an open door. Uh, so that's something that's very uh, uh, obvious. Um, that's, uh, so just because the supervisor was there as a more experienced doctor, uh, patients told us all kinds of things about how they tried to connect to the supervisor, how they tried to get a glimpse of the supervisor, if the supervisor would approve of what the residents did. You know, they were very keen on what the, the supervisor expressed. And so I think that perhaps could be, could call like an essence of the experience that you are there with, uh, with these two doctors of which one is more experienced than the other, which makes you feel as, or makes you do things as a patient. And so I think, well, perhaps we could call that like a pre-reflective experience. This is just there and, and this connects to you as a patient, but perhaps you're there with, with, with lots of um, worries about your health or perhaps not so, and then it, it will resonate differently but you will have this more experienced and this less experienced doctor. And that's the situation that you're experiencing. So does that make sense to you, Anna? Yes. Yes. It's a very different style. I, I, I will need to read about phenomenological interviewing because it, it makes sense that there would be a style of, of probing with the, the interviewee and a style of, of collecting data around that to get at the crystal at the center of everyone's experience. And I, it's an area of, of work that I've just never studied. I come from a, a quantitative psychology background oh, yeah. and have, have only sort of come at qualitative work from a very different angle from, from human factors research where we, we did a lot of things like stimulated recall, uh, cognitive task analysis, tacit knowledge elicitation. Those were the kinds of methods, qualitative ish methods that we used in human factors. And then working on conversation analysis with, with Tim Koshman, who was in our department at the time that I was a junior in the department. And uh, 
so my my understanding is is less educated by the academe than it is by learning through experience. No, same here. <laughs> I think that part of the confusion with phenomenology is like in an example like this, what, what Chris just explained, I think is a very integral way of translating yeah, a viewpoint of phenomenological philosophy to a research practice. And then it's it makes sense to say, well, I'm doing, I, I don't know what, what the method is, is called, but I'm doing phenomenology according to uh, this person or that person. But there are many other different ways of doing it. So that's the confusion because this comes from a phenomenological approach. And this approach, I mean, you just mentioned conversation analysis and maybe most conversation analysis wouldn't agree with me but for me that's a really good example of a phenomenological approach and even quantitative methods could be as well because of course phenomenology is often we see it as studying experiences and and trying to get as close as possible to it so like what chris explained when you're interviewing someone about the situation and one of the first things they do is they start evaluating. They're, they start giving their opinion. And then you kind of, in your interview, you, yeah, but okay, but where did you sit? Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so you really try to get to, the, to that situation. Um, but then you're clear about what are you interested in? I want to get as close as possible how you, another person that is not me, uh, what it was like to be in that situation. And then interviewing this way is a way to get at that. Uh, if we look at conversation analysis, it's almost the opposite side of that. Conversation analysis say, okay, let's let's record a directed observation situation, for instance. And then we transcribe the recording with all the intonations and the pauses and all the details of the interaction. And then what we're now going to do is very precisely describe what happens in the interaction with the question why this now mm -hmm. why here a silence why not there and well we have this whole apparatus and if someone asks you okay but what what do they want or what do they think you say well that's called bracketing right i don't know i i only see what's on the recording mm -hmm. the phenomenon is the recording i'm describing the interaction i'm not saying anything about what is causing the interaction or um uh, what, this is happening because the person is male or female or something like that. I'm completely limited to the interaction and what I see before me and what is observable and what is hearable. And those are both phenomenological uh, approaches. And then let's just to have a third counterpoint is like if you look closer at the phenomenology in uh, philosophy, and this is one of the major problems I have with how phenomenology is translated to research method is that phenomenology is about, yeah, I don't know, in English, you can say phenomenological in the sense that only the person who experienced experiences it, for instance, pain, right? Mm -hmm. Pain only if, if I hurt, only I can feel my pain. So that's my phenomenological perspective. And no one else but me can feel my pain. And what philosophers have done, like Husserl and Heidegger and uh, Sartre and, and others, they have really in detail described these kind of experiences like pain, but also like 
uh, I don't know, you're alone in a room and someone comes in or boredom or all those, all those kind of things. But then you're mostly, you say, well, what do I have access to? I only, if I want to describe experience, I only have access to the things that I experience. So I'm going to describe those uh, experiences. And those, those are three, in the first instance, you try to get as close to as possible to another person's, let's say, experience, viewpoint, frame of mind. In the second one, you you bracket that. You you say, I only describe what they do and what they say. And in the third one, you only focus on what you have direct access to, which is your own experience. And those are all, I mean, for me, from my perspective, those are all great examples of phenomenology. And I don't think there's much sense in trying to argue which one is more phenomenological or something like that. I think they're all, and you could even use them all in one project, I guess. That's, that's really interesting. And so what, in, in that light, what does applying the label of phenomenology or thinking about what makes your study or another person's study phenomenological or not, what value does that add to a particular medical educator's research enterprise? I was just wondering, also often when we have these conversations, Mary, and I often I have to cry out loud, okay, okay, okay. <laughs> but what good does that do? What do we do with yeah. this? No? Why? And it's, so I don't know if, if this is also what you're asking, but, but, but um, perhaps yes. So I would say I've done, and I'll give an example. I've done this constructive garden theory focus group study with residents on how they experience direct observation situations. And this was already quite open because also the constructive garden theory is a very open method with reflexivity and everything. And, um, and then the things that we found was were things like, uh, which were very valuable, but what we found was that uh, all kinds of discomforts that residents and supervisors may have with direct observation situations, they, they, were, they can be re related to a few things like uh, what kind of um, uh, skill was observed. So if uh, we found that uh, basic skills were much more vulnerable than, than advanced skills. So you can understand that. So if, if, you, if you perform a skill that you should have known already a long time ago, then it's much more painful when someone will say, well, you don't do this correctly. Then, yeah, then you, this is the, the, what is the imposter syndrome. And, um, and we found that uh, it makes a big difference if this direct observation is like ad hoc or is planned. This, you can imagine that too. So these were the kinds of results that we found in our constructive grounded theory studies. Now we are doing a phenomenological uh, study on residents' experiences in direct observation situations. This is my last study for my thesis. And so now I'm doing, so these are interviews, okay, no focus groups, but we, we more or less talk about the same situation. And now we get other results because we are looking for the essences of the experiences. And so now we find, for instance, as a very interesting result, I think, think is that um, 
when residents are in this situation, they have to do with a patient that they're actually treating at that moment, that they have a conversation with. And so if this resident, for instance, wants to um, advise the patient, being a junior with the senior present, then it makes it gives you an extra residents make an extra effort to seem to be reliable. You understand that that they know what they're talking about. That so they they want to convince the patient that it's okay with it. But at the same time, they have this supervisor sitting there, which makes them insecure, insecure if they do the right thing, if they say the right thing in the eyes of the supervisors. This is a very awkward situation that you have to, you have to be bigger than yourself while there's every reason to doubt about your, yourself at the same moment. So this is, is a way different kind of results uh, that we find in this study than in the constructive grounding theory study, you see? Mm -hmm. And I think if, if, if we can make residents and supervisors talk about these kinds of mechanisms in, in this situation that they're in, mm -hmm. uh, regardless of direct observation itself, it's just a situation that they're in, then perhaps they can figure it out how they can do this the best way, um, making sure that they will not hurt the patient or the resident or the supervisor. So this is what I find interesting about, this is why it's what makes it worthwhile. Yeah. It, it sounds like what you're going to be able to do there is help the supervisors and the residents see what's there versus acting with a, a sense, maybe an, an interpretation of what's of what it, what it should be or what it is supposed to be. It's so yeah. this is more about it, what it is. Yeah, mm. that's very empowering. Yeah. Well, I, yeah, I'm quite enthusiastic. <laughs> I must admit. <laughs> yeah, I would say we have to distinguish between the concrete methods that you're using and saying, let's say you're designing a research approach. Uh, project and you're saying I'm going to take a phenomenological approach and it could be interview studies or any any other kind of methods but what does it mean if you say I'm taking a phenomenological approach I think it means saying that I don't pretend to know what the phenomenon is mm. and that's very different so let's let's take another example uh, of reflection which it could be empathy it could be professionalism it could be anything else if you, if you study reflection from a phenomenological perspective, you don't start out. Uh, there are many different definitions of reflection. For instance, this and this, this is our definition. Um, how are we going to uh, examine how if, if residents do that or how they do that? You start out by, oh, you, I mean, you don't actually write that, but that's your attitude. It's like, okay, reflection, I don't know what it is. That's what I'm going to examine. Your research is limited in advance by the degree to which you understand the phenomenon that you're examining. If you start out by saying reflection is a cognitive phenomenon that dot, 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 you're not doing a phenomenology because you've just reduced reflection to cognition, which is not bad. I mean, it's very valid, but it's not phenomenology because then you are saying, I know, I already know that that reflection is a cognitive phenomenon and anything else uh, won't appear in your research because it's not part of your definition. So another approach is to, for instance, well, this is what 
one of my PhD students, Franz Schaapkens, did is to do focus groups with residents and and just ask them basically what what is reflection and how do you do it and how do you value it and so without giving your own definition you're just kind of asking them for a definition or you're trying to describe how in reflection se sessions again here you could use conversation analysis what is it that they do and then you're trying to describe the everyday practice and then as you do that, I think the label becomes like reflection in this case becomes less and less uh, important. And you're just open to what are the practices that what, yeah, how do they take place the practices? What do people do there? What is maybe valuable for them? What isn't? And I think that's very much in line with what medical education research wants to do is get close to practice and have results that are applicable to uh, practice. So if you study phenomenon on the level at which they occur and at, at which the residents and teachers uh, experience them, then your results will also be on that level. Like, uh, again, you know, the example of Chris's study about direct observation, well, observation already if you say observation is a way you look at the situation that you're not part of. Well, in Chris found in one of the articles, the fly on the wall, like you're a fly on the wall, but actually you're not the fly on the wall because the patient for the patient, you're not a fly on the wall. You're the more experienced doctor. So you're part of that interaction. And that's something that I think if you would start with the idea that observation is looking at the situation from the outside and you would never find that, but with a phenomenological study, you can find things like that. It, it, so I've got two thoughts that have come to mind. And one is if, if we're going to say, we're gonna scope what we're looking at by saying, we're gonna study what reflection is or what happens during a reflection sec session. Are we not already imposing a phenomenon onto that experience? And, and I, it no. makes me recall conversations that Tim and I would have when we were doing conversation analysis around, it was during a PBL, a problem-based learning tutor group session. And it was the second session that was following the, the self-directed learning that the students had pursued in order to uh, address learning issues that they had identified in the first session of, of the PBL tutorial. And where our interest was, how, do, how does this group reconstitute a learning issue after self-directed learning you know, together as a group? And we, we really struggled because calling the interaction that they were having as reconstituting a learning issue was putting a yeah. layer on it that the, a strict conversation analysis analyst would never approve of. So, it, so the thought I have is if we say that we're studying reflection, yeah. are we already sort of departing a little bit from the phenomenological approach well exactly that i mean <laughs> exactly if you well not if this what you're just saying now would be the next step uh saying well actually 
why do we even call it reflection? Right, right. So there's this, I mean, it's one of my favorite articles, even though it's about archival research and I haven't done anything with that by Tambuku. Um, she wrote this reflection on, she's studying an archive and the article is about how, how actually her identity uh, and the way she looks at things is, is influencing the, the phenomenon that she's studying even to the extent of the conversations she has with people on the bus ride on her way to work, the languages that she speaks, her history and everything like that. So, I mean, it's very fundam fundamental point, but for a phenomenology, you're, you are part of the research. You are part of the research apparatus and even the research methods that you are using are shaping the phenomenon. So you're not, again, not looking from the outside at the phenomenon you're looking at it from in the midst of things and because we are medical education researchers we're probably we chose this you know we already have a particular lens on what we want to study um but maybe there's a way to so if if what the example of what you just gave would be a great exercise to get that explicit and then when you go and look at that interaction to bracket it. So that means bracketing doesn't mean ignoring or, or trying to be neutral. It means like, I am aware that, you know, even the very fact that I'm doing the, this, this research project and applied for funding and everything is because I look at it in a certain way. And that's why the research project can happen, but it also means that I'm looking at it from a particular viewpoint. So. What can I do to give a voice to, in this case, the, the interaction or something? And then conversation analysis there would be, is a good tool because there you're not allowed to bring in all those concepts. And then maybe it turns out you're describing something and you turn, turn, turns out that learning issue isn't the whole, isn't the essential thing that is happening there, maybe something completely else. Well, and, and that actually relates to the second thought that I had, which is, Perhaps the, the power of a phenomenological analysis or, or approaching a particular phenomenon from a, a phenomenological approach is in, in medical education is a, a response to what we observe to be things that are taken for granted. So, you know what I mean? So if, if we hear educators or we hear trainees saying things that, that reflect assumptions about how things work, that that would be a great trigger for a phenomenological study hmm. because we, we now get to the basics. We, take, we respond to that assumption with the beginner's mind and we say, actually, let's take a look at that, you know, because then unpacking that assumption and describing what, what's really happening there then provides that empowerment to see and do things differently. And so, so when we're thinking about the different ways that we can approach our, our research or our inquiry, that selecting that phenomenological approach very uh, purposefully to kind of knock things loose and, and uproot assumptions that may cause other educational challenges, it, that would be a very powerful way to use 
phenomenological research rather than um, as, as I often see it, it's almost seen as cachet to do you know, a, a phenomenological study that, that you've labeled as such, and you can throw some terms around in your introduction section. And, and this is really more about what is the functional utility of looking at things in this way for changing how we do education. Yeah. This is, I couldn't have said it more beautiful than that. Mm -hmm. This is what it's all about, I think. It's, it's like in our article, we say, well, it's, 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 it's when, when there's an issue that, uh, that you want to research, it would be a good starting point to, to start the research uh, on it, asking these basic questions. But also later on, if, if you have like problems that, that are very uh, uh, repeating, that, that are not so like, I'm doing this research on direct observation because Direct observation is, a, is a, a, a difficult issue. I mean, we all find it very important, but it keeps uh, a, a not happening uh, enough, or uh, we don't know. But but there's also there's an issue about direct observation, and so and there's been quite some research now on direct observation, but we perhaps have overlooked this very basic uh, going into the situation and see what what is act actually happening there. What how do people experience this in in a very basic pre-reflexive way. So I quite agree with, with what you just said. It's, it's, this has been really a helpful discussion, very <laughs> enlightening. Yeah, I just want, just the last thing I want to say is that phenomenology in philosophy, in the history of philosophy, phenomenology by Husserl, but also taken up later by Heidegger was introduced as this is the way to do philosophy. It's more reliable, it's more closer to experience because they felt that philosophers up to that point started with, for instance, um, this whole theory about reality and maybe reality consists of mind and matter. And this, you know, uh, you need to first have this huge theory about reality and the relationship between what is true and what is false and opinion and uh, the world and our mind. Okay. First, you need to figure all that stuff out, and then you can start to do science. But Husserl said, what if we bracket all that? What if we, we I'm not saying it's not, not important or whatever, what if we put those, all those questions to one side? And I start just, well, his famous phrase is to the things themselves. Well, what is the things themselves? It's whatever is showing to me right now. I'm speaking to you on Zoom. I have a computer in front of me. And so, I mean, in that case, that's where you could start. And you can never be wrong because that's what's showing itself to you. You're not trying to look at what is causing the computer to be there or what is my uh, uh, subconscious psychological idea for being here. And... I mean, those are all very interesting questions, but if you do phenomenology, you say, well, let's not speak about what is the ontology or what is reality or what is reflection or all this theory, just start with an example like direct observation or an education session, or maybe your own experience of teaching or something. It's just, a, yeah, for me, it's, that was very refreshing when I learned about that. It's like, just start with what's right in front of you and start describing it. And then we have all this whole apparatus about how you can go about that. But 
that's the basic point, I think, for me. Yes, and, and I would add to that in, from a practical view as a medical educator, then starting with that, but also making its importance. So don't neglect it. So what, what, what you can easily do is that you say, well, yeah, of course, I'm the supervisor sitting in. Of course, I have an opinion about what you're doing, but you just do your thing with the patient. And, you know, and this is just how we do it. Um, so I think that the, the, the nice thing of phenomenology is when you, when you seriously research this, that you make it more, more important than you make. Yes, this is really what's going on. And we can neglect it, but it doesn't help us because we keep feeling uncomfortable in these situations. So why not just start at the beginning? What's going on? What are we doing to each other in this situation? Yeah, and, and I like how it really empowers the people in a particular situation to do those explorations. It, it seems sometimes that we push educators out of research by, by their lack of, say, disciplinary training. And... It, thinking about things from an, a phenomenological perspective, it, it really, it, and I'm, I'm overusing the word, but it empowers their eyes, their lens, their, their senses to understand what's happening to them yeah. and to share with others what is happening to them. And that I think is a really exciting aspect of thinking about things from a phenomenological approach. That's Wonderful. Well, thanks. I think, I mean, it's great because we had, a, I had a discussion with Chris, Chris for a while, then we wrote this article, then we had this dialogue with, uh, uh, with the reviewers and with the editor. And now we have this other discussion. And uh, I think that's the great thing. It's an ongoing discussion, right? So uh, I hope, uh, yeah, people enjoy the article, but also realize that that's just where we are at the moment and maybe in a one or two years we might have different insights yes yeah. this will go on yeah <laughs> <laughs> indeed yeah should, should we say anything about the book anna um i i don't know should we i there's a book coming from this <laughs> series <laughs> yes yes with in in the spirit of continued dialogue we yeah. will the book will put together the articles from the series and then have an integrated concluding chapter integrative concluding chapter that will explore what what are we what is the next step in this dialogue about philosophy and medical education based on where we're at so far it's exciting that's wonderful yeah great very nice so the series is great and it's wonderful to have it captured in a book Thanks, and thank you for this conversation. Yes, thank you. Thank you, Anna. Nice to uh, talk to you. Thank you for listening. Next time we will discuss medical humanities.